The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? As Xi Jinping visits Vladimir Putin in Russia this week, this episode of Chinese Whispers is returning to one of the missions of this podcast series, to look at things as the Chinese see them. My guest today is Zhou Bo, a retired senior colonel of the People's Liberation Army, whose military service started in 1979. He is now a senior fellow at the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University, an eloquent and informed advocate of Beijing's perspective. On the podcast, I want to get his views on some of the burning questions surrounding China's involvement in the Russian invasion since it began last year, and challenge him on some of the inconsistencies in the Chinese position. For example, if the Chinese say that they care about sovereignty so much, why don't they do more about the Russian invasion? And now before we get started, just a note that we recorded most of this podcast two weeks ago, so when Xi's visit to Moscow was announced last week, Bo kindly agreed to rejoin the podcast and give his take on the visit too. Now, chances are, you won't agree with most of the things that Bo says, and as you're here, I often didn't either. But even so... Beijing will continue to play a crucial role in the war, and so it remains important for the West to understand how the Chinese see things. Jobo, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Now, China's position has often been criticised in the West for being too supportive of Russia. What's your understanding of China's position on the war? Well, I think as a comment on China-Russian relationship is really not fair in the West, in that if you look at this most important relationship in the world just like China-US relationship, you have to put it first of all on binary context. And if you put that in binary context, you would know that China is Russia's largest neighbor and vice versa. The problem with China now is that China, because of its weight and heft, is actually associated with everything that doesn't seem to have anything to do with China. And this is the price you have to pay as a great power. And because of the war in Ukraine, of course, and because of the China and Russia's good relationship, definitely people would ask a question about uh, uh, this relationship. That makes a lot of sense. But on this Russo-Ukrainian war, I think China has already uh, contributed a lot, at least uh, on two issues that are basically underappreciated in the West, as I have written in Financial Times a few days ago. First of all, China didn't throw wood into the fire. Well, this may just sound somewhat empty, but to think of China's, uh, you know, uh, weight and think of China's military, if China joins Russia, this is already the dawn of the Third World War. So people haven't realized that how China actually has contributed to peace in Europe, but not picking a side with Russia. Yeah. Then the second thing is China has made it crystal clear that we are against any possible use of nuclear weapons in Europe. I first wrote uh, on this that was published in FT, and I didn't expect in 
actually a week's time, my president Xi Jinping met with Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, and he reiterated this firm decade-old Chinese policy, which was reiterated during his meeting with Joe Biden at G20. So, so far, we have made uh, two distinctive contributions for peace in Europe. And then China, of course, is going to do more. And uh, people talk about uh, China's uh, possibility of uh, providing lethal uh, military support uh, mm. to Russia, which is totally impossible, because that doesn't make any sense. Why would China do that if China didn't provide any such support to Russia in the last 12 months? And if China does, of course, it won't go unnoticed. And why should China do that when China actually is tabling a peace proposal for resolution of the conflict? So on the question of lethal aid, some people would say that if American intelligence is so confident that China is considering this, that kind of affords it an authority, a trustedness in this kind of intelligence, even though we haven't seen it ourselves. How can you say for sure that China is not considering it? Because it's not in China's own interests. The question is, why should China be dragged into a conflict that is far away from China, which is between Russia, one of the uh, the strongest nations on earth, and Ukraine, which takes China as its largest uh, trading partner. And this is a war, an unprecedented war in the heart of Europe. And why should China pick a side and get itself involved? It doesn't make any sense. So you've mentioned that this is a question that makes sense to ask of China because China is now a global player. We talk about America being this global policeman and China is clearly wanting to take more responsibilities in the world now that it's the second largest economy. But you then say it doesn't want to take sides in this war. I mean, isn't it shirking its responsibilities as a global player? Well, that's a very good point. China is different from a small country in that a small country would probably consider more about itself and its ambience, right? And its military would simply want to safeguard its sovereignty and territorial integrity. China is no exception, but China as a major power has two things more. One is it has global economic interests that it has to safeguard. Besides, Great power shows showed us greater responsibility. Therefore, China also showed a greater responsibility. So in the future, China has to safeguard its own sovereignty and territory integrity, which is unusual for a major power like China, because China has not become reunified. But at the same time, it has to also consider something else. That is how to defend its overseas interest and how to show its greater international responsibilities. But in terms of security, China's primary concern is still about its doorsteps, that is the South China Sea, that is Taiwan, a Strait, all these kind of issues. So if you know how China has been concerned with all these issues, which are becoming more and more mm. sophisticated with uh, what we perceive to be foreign interferences, you would understand that China should have no interest whatsoever to be involved in a way in a war far away in Europe. And you also mentioned that lengthy border between China and Russia, which at the moment, I understand, is the least militarised it has been in decades. And is that part of the reason why China doesn't want to make an enemy of Russia as well? You see, neighbours won't move away. So this is just the reality, both for China and for Russia. And we are just the, the largest neighbour to both each other. And because of the uh, not necessarily all pleasant history, 
China now, with its border issue totally resolved uh, with Russia, should have all reasons to maintain this uh, good neighborliness policy with Russia. And they would think uh, likewise, I believe. So uh, that's what I said in the beginning. When people think about the relationship, mostly they think they would put it in a different context and would look at it through third eye. But if you look at this relationship, either by Chinese or by Russians, they know this is the priority, that we must remain friendly with this biggest neighbor. And this is about foreign policy. And in terms of practicalities, there are also some, so many things that we should consider, because even in the long run, Russia would be useful for China economically and vice versa. So there are huge interests. Right now, I think the, the West is somewhat biased because of the war in the heart of Europe. They would just examine this relationship from a kind of a Western context, which automatically would become somewhat biased. Now, you mentioned the peace plan that China has recently released. The first point of the peace plan is respect for sovereignty, something that you've also mentioned so far. In light of all of these different interests and reasons to be friendly with Russia, isn't it the case that sovereignty has taken a back seat when it comes to China's foreign policy? You know, China has always talked about sovereignty as an important part of its foreign policy. As a Chinese person, I understood that respect for sovereignty as a legacy of our brutalized recent history. But now it feels pretty empty when a sovereign nation is being invaded and China won't do anything about it. No, I don't think China's proposal is empty. Because uh, ever since day one, when this war came out, China has been talking about two sides of the same coin. Uh, the only thing is, uh, I think the West has uh, become a kind of a selectively blind towards the uh, two sides of the same coin, because uh, they talked about uh, how China has not been uh, you know, crystal clear about uh, this war being the invasion. But when China talks about respect for sovereignty, we actually have gently criticized Russia in pointing out this actually is a violation of another country's sovereignty. But because China's relationship with, with Russia is friendly, so we did not put it out so bluntly. But this attitude about respect for sovereignty is talked about in, in the very beginning, and it could not be misunderstood. But on the other hand, we do have some sympathies toward Russia as to why this war uh, just came out. Because uh, ever since the uh, Soviet Union, Soviet leader like Mikhail Gorbachev, down to Russian leader Boris Yeltsin and uh, President Putin have invariably warned against such NATO expansions. NATO from time to time pledged not to expand, but it didn't actually uh, keep this promise. And I have a reason why. Uh, this has happened because the military alliances basically live on so-called threats. They need the threats to survive and to thrive. And for such a juggernaut like NATO, uh, it did not uh, you know, go away uh, with uh, the end of the Cold War. Instead, it wants to expand. Therefore, it has to have a big threat to justify its own existence. It's not about you know counterterrorism. These kind of things are pretty small things that are useful, but not, not totally useful for such a big military bloc. So they need something bigger, which has to be Russia, 
because uh, who looks uh, <clears throat> most like uh, Soviet Union? Russia is not the Soviet Union, but of course, Russia looks most like Soviet Union. So in this regard, this turned out to be the reality. They have been turning the deaf ear to whatever warnings from Russia. Probably they are just a, a bit uh, too arrogant because they have uh, won the Cold War. Then comes this concept of sphere of influence. Sphere of influence, of course, is a dirty word. You, you know, nobody would really talk about it openly. But if Russia believes there is a sphere of influence, if Russia believes Ukraine are really a one people, you can imagine how they feel. So if Russia would like to defend its sphere of influence with arms, with forces, then the conclusion is for Russia, there is a sphere of influence. So right now, the West just talk about uh, what is happening on the soil of Ukraine. Of course, everybody understand uh, war is cruel, but uh, without you know, referring to the very causes of why it happened at all, there is no security in, in Europe. Because in Europe, the security architecture actually stands only on compromises between Russia and NATO. And even in the future, it would be something like this. NATO can say, NATO is not forcing any country to join, and all countries afraid of being afraid of Russia would volunteer to join. These are totally true. That is correct. But with this kind of expansion makes Russia extremely uncomfortable. And to some extent, NATO has actually driven itself to the threshold of a nuclear war. So this is a zombie that is still walking. This is not a brain dead, as Macron said. I described it as a zombie that is walking. So right now, this is what is happening in Europe. You have to find a compromise with Russia, like it or not. Otherwise, you will always live in fear, in panic. Well, Jobo, isn't your version of history of NATO a little bit one-sided by the sense that, I mean, it's not just the West that still sees Russia as the USSR. It seems that some people in Russia still see themselves or want to go back to the glory days of the Soviet Union. And so then they put themselves against the West as a kind of counter. Some people in the West would say if Russia were to democratise, if Russia were to respect sovereignty, then it would very much be welcomed into NATO itself. Russia is not necessarily the enemy, but Russia as it is at the moment is. I mean, isn't that part of what has been brought on by how Russia has been governed since the fall of the Soviet Union as well, especially under Putin? I think you are right uh, in that uh, Russia is not uh, totally justifiable in its attitude toward the international order, for example, because I believe Russia would look to the future from the past. And that is the problem with Russia. Uh, Russia is not strategic. Putin talked about uh, the Hades of the uh, Soviet Union. And he talked about what is the use of the world without Russia, right? Uh, then, uh, in my opinion, that I was publishing FT, I asked this question, and where is Russia without the world? If you use nuclear weapon, where is the world? And then where is Russia? That, that's a problem. So I believe uh, this kind of uh, mentality of Russia being a great power is deeply embedded in Russian people's mentality. And probably this kind of uh, dissolution of Soviet Union has actually added to this kind of uh, acrimony. But then let's talk about something else, about international order. When people at this Munich Security Conference, which I 
attended recently, the basic conclusion is totally wrong. And it cannot be more wrong because uh, according to the report of Munich Security Conference, the conclusion is that uh, on one side is uh, China and Russia, two autocratic revisionists, and then on the other side is Western democracy. And uh, the conclusion is uh, China and Russia are challenging the international order. And the West, yes, has also made some problems. That is, it has not paid enough attention to the countries in the global south. Therefore, we should do something to improve ourselves. But this kind of basic conclusion is wrong. China's attitude toward the international order is different from Russia's because China has benefited from interacting with the West since the reform and opening up. So China's tremendous achievements is because it is ready to learn. Yeah, it is ready to integrate itself with uh, the rest of the world, including the West. But the problem with the Western mentality is that it is narcissistic because it believes the international order after Second World War is just a liberal international order. This is totally, totally wrong. Why? Because uh, we must admit that whenever we live on this earth, there is something like an order, yeah? And this order may be balanced or imbalanced somewhere, but there is an order. But the question is, how do we define this order? The order itself, in my opinion, is made of different layers. First, it is composed of different social systems, different religions, different cultures, different national identities, and some of these may just have lasted for uh, millenniums. This is the identity of a nation. So this, this kind of thing, some of them, them are very static. They, they are not so volatile. And then the second layer is the major events that have constantly shaped this international order. For example, after Second World War, you can imagine how many major events have occurred. We're not talking about some small things. We're talking about the independent movement of Africa continent, which included 53 countries. The independence of 53 countries is no small thing. We're talking about the rivalry of two camps, right? Led by NATO and on one side and the Warsaw Pact on the other side. So even talking about this, how do you know that the order after the Second World War is totally liberal in the natural order? Are you so illegal-orient? And then, how about the rise of China? This all happened after the Second World War. So these major events have shaped this order. And the problem with the West is that it is symbolistically believing that the economic rules and regimes and some of the constitutions it has helped to establish are the international order, which, for me, are just a part of the order but not the whole order. So you see a much more diverse environment of different national cultures, political cultures, that liberalism is just one strand of that, the Western strand, but there, internationally there are other political cultures that have always existed since World War II. Yeah, but the danger of this kind of Western belief is that if you believe in the liberal international order, actually it hurts yourself because you become narcissist. And because if you believe uh, democracy is no longer thriving as it is uh, found by Freedom House, ever since 2006, 
Western democracy has been declining. So you start to blame other countries because you believe you are the right one, because you believe you are the one holding the liberal international order. Then, and you find that the world is not moving this way. And the world in the future is not moving this way. So you, you become frustrated and you start to look around and then you find China and Russia to blame. But China and Russia are still different. I wonder if that almost universalist view of the world that the West holds about liberalism is partly why it fears so much China's rise in that it believes that there's a liberal order ruling the world after, let's say, the Cold War. And so if anyone's going to challenge that liberal order, then their order would also be universalist. But are you saying that if China were to be the world superpower it were to overtake the US, what the Chinese see is actually more of a multipolar world rather than a Chinese-led authoritarian world order. I think that's a large part of the fear of Western countries about China's rise. Yeah, I think that is true because China never proposed to have a unipolar world. China never talks like the United States that it's a city upon the hill. China never said like a Madeleine Albright that the United States is indispensable. China never talked in that term. China always says that, okay, because this involves everybody, let's do it together. And China talks about humanity, of shared future. This you know, grandiose concept of President Xi Jinping right now has two pillars under it. One is a global security initiative, another is a global development initiative, right? Uh, so some critics say that these are very general principles without details that are wrong. Why? Let me tell you. Under this Global Development Initiative, we have already seen Belt and Road Initiative, which is totally, totally tangible, because uh, this uh, has only a history of 10 years. 10 years ago, few people know what it means, but in 10 years, this becomes an international phrase that almost all educated people know. So this is uh, not an empty idea. We have spent uh, you know, billions or trillions of dollars in it. So it's not an empty idea. So that's why I talk to some people who say, this is Chinese trap. I said, okay, would you spend uh, trillions of dollars to lay a trap? Would you do that? Yeah. Then about the global security initiative, we also have something on the net that is a place operations overseas. Right now, there are basically three types of operations by PLA overseas, that is counter-piracy, that is peacekeeping, and that is disaster relief. But if you put all these operations all together, they have a common name. Professionally speaking, it is a military operation other than war, what we call the mutwa. So, but these operations are just a humanitarian nature. For example, in counter-piracy in Gulf of Aden, we dispel pirates, we apprehended pirates, but we didn't try to kill them. We do not want to kill anyone. And so, so far overseas, China has not, purely has not killed anyone. And we are extremely cautious in behaving like that. And this would come into such a sharp contrast with NATO, with the US, you know, activities, military operation overseas. How many people have been killed or injured purposefully or inadvertently by these operations? Don't you think that's just a matter of time in the sense that in the timeline of China and the US being superpowers, the US has had 100 years head start, let's say, since the beginning of the 20th century. Whereas China, as you say, only really from reform and opening has it become a strong country internationally and it is still 
a work in progress. So, of course, its army hasn't been going out there being the global policeman because it hasn't had needed to, it hasn't had the money to do so. But are you really telling me that as China gets stronger, that it wouldn't consider killing people in Taiwan if it were to take military action over Taiwan? I mean, some people are talking about the Indian border would point to the soldiers who are hurt and killed by Chinese soldiers. I mean, isn't it just that China hasn't had that kind of role so far, but that doesn't mean it won't have it in the future? Well, this is uh, my best hope for China in the future. And I believe it is still possible. Nobody can say for sure that China would really behave like a pacifist without any killing in the future. But history may just uh, give us some guidance. That is, China's uh, rise is uh, very peaceful indeed, if you compare it with some other countries. So let's talk about uh, the border clash between China and India. So even if uh, this clash has claimed the life of 20 Indian soldiers and four Chinese soldiers. This is deadly brawl. That means uh, we did not try to shoot at each other. So that means in 21st century, the troops of China and India are fighting in, in a manner only found in Stone Age. And why is that? Because both sides subconsciously know that they should not shoot at each other in any circumstances. The Indian soldiers did uh, shoot into the sky to give a kind of warning, but so far we have not been shooting at each other. So this is true. As, and this is almost the only example you can find in the kind of uh, clashes. And then about the Taiwan issue. Taiwan issue, this is, of course, needs to say, this is a, a domestic issue. But I genuinely believe that uh, we have uh, utmost sincerity and it would make us the motor efforts to try to get reunified peacefully. Because what is the use of uh, Taiwan that is totally battered and shattered for us? Uh, let alone there are so many people on the island. Uh, it, it, so the, the cost would be too high for us. But as I understand it, President Xi hasn't talked to President Tsai since she was elected in 2016. I mean, that's not making the utmost efforts to have peaceful reunification. Uh, yeah, that is true. But uh, then comes this question. Why would President Xi talk to Ma Yingju, Tsai's predecessor, and not to her? Because we in mainland believe uh, Ma Yingju did not give a timetable for reunification. Mainland did not give out a timetable for reunification. But we in the mainland are somewhat confident that Ma Yingju still agree to this kind of a uh, general concept of Taiwan being uh, part of one China. So we have some confidence in him. So that is why we know, well, we don't know when we could become reunited, but we know so long as we walk down the road one day, we can become uh, still a big family. This is, uh, this is our confidence. So we're not that much worried. Therefore, we give uh, uh, mind use uh, authority a lot of uh, preferential economic benefits, and we did not try to disturb Taiwan's diplomatic relationship with uh, about a dozen countries. But the Thai, of course, you know, is it is a totally different story. And we don't have confidence in her at all. But it's not just a question of her, right? I mean, she was elected twice. And I think there is increasing public opinion in Taiwan that doesn't want to become a part of the People's Republic of China. Part of that, in this greater context, what do you think of how China has dealt with Hong Kong? Because not least because of the Hong Kong people who've moved to Taiwan in general after the national security law, but 
Taiwan can see what one country, two systems turns into. So why would it want to be a part of that? I mean, hasn't China kind of messed this one up? I think it has a lot of things to do with education. Yeah, because Taiwan has been separated from many for so long. And if all these voices are promoting a kind of independence. So I understand to some degrees what you said is correct. But I'm also thinking about this issue. For example, it won't be too long before China becomes the largest economy in the world. Some people talk about 2028 in Britain before pandemic. Yeah, so that is the most optimistic you know, forecast. Now, people seem to be less optimistic given China's aging population and apparent slowdown economy. But I would believe maybe even if we take a few years more, this is still achievable. Then wouldn't that be a turning point in changing the mentality of Taiwanese people? If they consider themselves to be part of the strongest nation on earth, wouldn't that change the mentality? Some people want to be changed for any reasons, but then there is a possibility for them to change the mentality. And besides, on this issue, it's not only what uh, Taiwanese would think about, it's also about what the mainlanders would think about. These two parts of being one China. That also matters. What do you mean by that? I mean, the future of Taiwan is not only determined by uh, Taiwanese, it is also determined by mainlanders because uh, we believe Taiwan is part of China. So it's not only they can decide on their own future, it's that mainland could also decide on the future of Taiwan. Your point about economics is really interesting because it's something that I've heard a lot from speaking to Chinese interlocutors about Hong Kong and about Taiwan, that so much is placed on the material goods of a better economy, of a stronger country, all of these sort of things. And very little is put on to a pursuit of values like democracy, freedom of speech, which then the answer becomes was one about education, as, you, as you've said today. Why would Taiwan care about China being the world's largest economy if it doesn't currently care now? And when Taiwan is a, you might not call it a country, but Taiwan as a set of islands is economically doing very, very well in all sorts of areas. I, I just don't know if, I think it betrays a particularly materialistic view of the world that I think a lot of people in Beijing have, which I think is fascinating. Well, I think uh, it is also true that uh, Taiwan has benefited hugely from economic interaction with mainland. And there are so many Taiwanese living in China, for example, in Shanghai. It's a huge number. Yeah, I don't know exactly how many people live there, but sometimes people would talk about one million or half a million. I don't know. So when that figure was raised, I was thinking about this. Probably a lot of people above middle class in Taiwan are actually living in China. So these people, of course, uh, should be middle class at least. Otherwise, they cannot uh, not afford, you know, to live uh, away, <laughs> to live in Taiwan. So that means uh, in Shanghai, the life there is very comfortable. I, I once talked to, to a Frenchman, and he said that there are probably 100,000 Frenchmen living in Shanghai alone. So Taiwanese, um, yeah, some people talk about uh, one million. I don't know whether it's true or not. So that means, you know, this kind of a difference in social system doesn't really matter to them. Besides, we actually would uh, make this kind of conditions for reunification 
quite uh, tolerant for Taiwanese, I believe, because the central government uh, has uh, certainly put forward a number of uh, measures as proposals. And then, of course, this kind of things are always negotiable. And uh, we have expressed time again that these kind of things are negotiable. But for Taiwan to be separated from mainland, this is not affordable for us. I want to bring this back to the Russia-Ukraine war. But before I do, just one final question on Taiwan, which is that what, what do you think is the possibility of military action over Taiwan from China in terms of an invasion? I mean, some American military sources have said it's before 2025, for example. You're someone with links to the military. I mean, what, what do you think about that? And what would be the threshold, if not a timeline, but what would be the threshold that you think China would decide that peaceful reunification is not possible and therefore this is the moment to strike? Your question uh, raised a few good points. Uh, first of all, I know who you are referring to. The, uh, that is... Uh... American's four-star general, Mike Minihan, who was a commander of uh, American's Air Mobility Command, he said something like that. But the question is, even his superior, Pentagon, didn't agree with him. And the Pentagon pointed out that his uh, remarks are not in accordance with assessment of the Pentagon. So I have a lot of questions for his remarks. First of all, if it is fine if someone has a, his gut feeling right? We all have our own God feeling on something. But how come that you would say something that is so, so consequential based on your God feeling, and you would send it in a memo to your subordinates? This is very weird for me, because if I have read all the medium report on his remarks, but I could not find any statistics supporting his argument. And this kind of God feeling is really horrendous. And it tells me something about uh, the difficulties in China-U.S. relationship. That is how a divided, you know, American domestic policy could actually bring chaos to its foreign policy. People don't often talk about that, but definitely foreign policy is the extension of domestic politics. And right now in the United States, even as outsiders, we are worried to see how the United States is becoming so domestically divided because this would create a problem for us. You see, this kind of division is manifested at different layers. It is between or among the three branches. It is within the military itself, just like the remarks of a general in disagreement with his superior. And it is found apparently between the legislative branch and the executive branch. For example, like uh, Leslie Pelosi's visit, Biden didn't like it. Pentagon didn't like it, but it still, uh, it still went there. So these, all these things put together would actually create a lot of problems. And Biden himself is a weak president, frankly speaking. So putting all this together, it is extremely difficult to manage this relationship. As that is a big, big challenge for us. And then coming back to your questions about uh, how a military attack is likely uh, that, that actually is not uh, a big question because uh, in our uh, anti-secession law, we have made it clear that uh, this kind of uh, non-peaceful means of resolving the Taiwan issue by mainland could only occur in three situations. One is that uh, Taiwan would declare independence. This doesn't look possible. They are not so stupid to do that. The second thing is uh, major events leading to the separation of Taiwan from mainland, I try to think hard about what these kind of events might be. And I would consider 
Nancy Pelosi's visit, or even the much talked about uh, visit of uh, Kevin McCarthy might be in this category. But uh, right now, Kevin McCarthy has apparently changed his idea after he's been elected because he's uh, talking about meeting Taiwan in California rather than he himself makes a visit to Taiwan. The third situation is that mainland believes that uh, the prospect for peaceful unification is uh, exhausted for good. So about this last point, my advice is that uh, you have to let mainland China to believe we can still reach peaceful reunification with Taiwan. So this won't happen. And for us to believe there is a peace to be maintained, as we often say in peacekeeping, right? For us to peacekeeping, we have to make sure that, that there is a peace to be kept. And for us to believe that there is a peace to be kept across Taiwan Strait, then the question is what the United States should do. All these kind of signals sending to China, sending to Taiwan, are not conflicting. They're totally confusing. They're totally responsible. So that comes to the remarks by Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gan today, talking about the guardrails. I think it is true that uh, neither China nor the United States wants to have a conflict. But the problem is, we do not know how to avoid that. First of all, we have to reach agreement on the instruments, through what channels could we actually try to maintain this relationship to make it as peaceful as possible? Second, what are the genuine issues that could actually destabilize this relationship to steps that we might slide into conflict? So all these things together, I don't believe uh, we right now have an agreement on this. So you are seeing the tones actually rising higher and higher. This is not healthy but uh, raises as a question, who is more responsible for this? In your second and third points about those conditions for a military action, I mean, they're really big categories. They're really, really big categories. If Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan can be seen as a step towards Taiwan being separated from uh, mainland China, then I think the bar is very low for something to count in that category. What I didn't understand when that was happening last year was why Beijing couldn't say... We welcome Speaker Pelosi to our beautiful province of Taiwan. <laughs> Please come see us and do come into the mainland as well. You know, this kind of going head to head in a very strong way, instead of using slightly more diplomacy, what I, what I consider as Chinese deftness in cultural senses. Why isn't more of that being used when it comes to the problem over the strait? You know, why does a Pelosi visit have to become such a big deal, which I think partly was made such a big deal by Beijing's reaction? Mm, there are some people in the West who have argued like you. And I believe there are, of course, a number of reasons for that. Primarily is because uh, men in China believe uh, Taiwan is a part of China. And on such matters of uh, diplomacy, defense, of course, just like in Hong Kong, you have to have agreement of the central government. So this is not uh, being, you see, the, the central government. Therefore, you could just go there to visit someone without my, my permission. You have to let me know first and to see whether I like it or not. And because this relationship cross-grade is so sour, there is no possibility for what you have uh, described beautifully. So it is impossible at this stage. 
And I want to bring us back to the Russian invasion because China has proposed this peace plan that we've been talking about. But if it really cares about peace, shouldn't it do more about that than just talk about it? I think we'll have to be patient. Patience is really a virtue of Chinese. And so when you think about the Chinese mentality, you also got to bear this in mind. Let me give you two examples. One is uh, China's uh, reform and opening up. China didn't have a roadmap, but Chinese, uh, I believe so far, can be said to be good at uh, finding the road without a map. Because the reform and opening up, they didn't have a map, and uh, there is no such a map how you can shake off poverty of 800 million people within four decades. There is no roadmap, and we did it. And then about this Belt Road Initiative, which I mentioned just now, 10 years ago, what was it? It's in a nutshell. Nobody understand it. But in 10 years' time, you see how it actually proliferated into so many things so tangible around the world. So I believe China's role in this Russia-Ukraine war, first of all, is a genuine step forward in a constructive way. Because in the past, China's position is more kind of a nuanced neutrality. But uh, putting forward this uh, peace plan itself is a major step forward. And the Chinese uh, thinking is always, uh, you know, think about some uh, big concepts to lay out the structure first before fulfilling it with concrete uh, bricks, for example, so on and so forth. Then you come to think about China's role first in uh, the six-party talks, which is on the denuclearization in Korean Peninsula, and China's role in the Iranian nuclear issue, which is called JCPOA. So in the first example, China basically is a de facto leader like, of coordinating all the parties together. So China uh, played a very significant role. And then in JCPOA, China is just an equal participant. China's role is not uh, bigger than the one in the Secret Party talks. So China have different ways of playing its role. But on this issue, the conflict in Europe, China has a unique advantage. That is China's good relationship with Russia. If Russia would like to listen to anyone, most probably it is China now. So China has a lot of potentials to play. And this war will not finish very soon. So I believe in the days to come, because in part, the world is looking up to China all the more. So long as the war drags on, people would simply have more expectation for China to play a positive role. And this kind of expectation can sometimes become the pressure for China to do more. So there is no going back. Yeah, China has already made a constructive uh, step forward, and I believe there would be second or third steps to come. Now, that's where we left the conversation a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and since then, we've had several new developments. There is the ongoing visit from President Xi to President Putin in Moscow. There's also the announcement to beef up AUKUS, that trilateral alliance between the UK, the US and Australia, which involves around nuclear submarines. I wanted to get Joe Boar's views on all of these things. So, so he's kindly agreed to come back on the show. Joe Boar, thank you so much. When we last spoke, you said that China should be doing more to mediate in this crisis. Is that what this visit to Moscow is about? Because it could also be seen as yet another way in which China is supporting Russia. 
Indeed, it really depends on where you are standing. So the results could be totally different. But I think it would not be wrong to say that uh, after China's peace plan, uh, President uh, Xi Jinping's visit uh, to Russia will certainly be helpful. The, the point is, uh, when people look at this relationship, people now would examine this relationship from uh, the third party's perspective. But first of all, it has to be uh, a natural relationship. That means Xi Jinping went to Moscow. He was very mind how China should develop his relationship with Russia. So the war in Ukraine certainly is uh, one of the topics, but not uh, necessarily topic. So that, that's that's a that's a problem. And uh, I'm sure during the visit, whether they announce it or not, this issue about Ukraine would be discussed uh, <laughs> to a great length, right? And but then the question is, what can China do? It's not really a question of what China can do. China cannot do anything right now. Uh, because uh, no one would like to see a ceasefire, be it Russia, Ukraine, or the United States. So if we talk about a peace, the first step, of course, is ceasefire. But none of these countries now want a ceasefire. So China can only help when these countries decide to have a ceasefire, right? And it's not only China that is helping. Uh, there might be other countries uh, who want to help. So China can only jump in at a time that is the most appropriate. So what else do you think is on the agenda for presidency meeting President Putin? Uh, I think that the first of all, it's a re- really a bilateral meeting because uh, uh, few people know, but this is true, that actually at uh, uh, in the late 1990, the two countries have actually established a kind of a, a mechanism uh, for senior Bilateral exchanges. This is at uh, the level of head of state and also at uh, prime minister or premier's level. So, in this regard, this is done alternatively. Last year, President Putin came to China, and this year, so it is China's turn to go to Russia. It's not that we suddenly decided to go to to, to Russia. This is a mechanized, regularized mechanism. So, of course, this uh, first of all is for you know, by natural purposes. And then, of course, because we two countries are major powers and we are also members of the, uh, you know, US Security Council, definitely we're going to talk about some other issues, including this issue. Mm. And since we last spoke, there's also been this announcement around AUKUS, where the British Prime Minister has stepped uh, on the podium with the American President and the Australian Prime Minister to talk about what this deal could look like. Now, they didn't mention China much, but it's clearly got China in mind. So I wondered from your perspective, what, is, what does the view look like on AUKUS from Beijing? AUKUS is definitely against China because um, otherwise you cannot explain why Australia would uh, need uh, nuclear power submarines. Just to give you a scenario, if China and Australia have a conflict, where can it be? It cannot be in the waters of Australia, right? We have no purposes whatsoever against Australia, and our, and our strategic, uh, you know, focus is not in that direction. It can only be in South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait or near Taiwan Strait. That means the ships would come close to China. Yeah, this is the only logical conclusion. But then, how? Um, 
How helpful are these eight submarines uh, to Australia? I would argue that it actually gives them more trouble uh, than pleasure. Why? Because uh, Australia has no nuclear industry. And for, because of these eight nuclear submarines, they have to develop uh, an industry from scratch. And these uh, nuclear submarines will have to be built elsewhere. Then, about nuclear submarines, the maintenance would be a big issue. Now, ships need to be maintained. And for nuclear submarines, these ships have to be sent somewhere for maintenance. So all these things would actually give them a lot of, lot of, lot of trouble. And besides, basically, I believe this kind of effort is because uh, Australia was sweet talk. Therefore, it is actually subsidizing American military, which doesn't have enough ships or manpower in this region. Historically speaking, the irony is Australia always fought other people's war because they do not have wars themselves. So beating Gallipoli, Vietnam, or Afghanistan, they always fought other people's war. And they never think really hard about how to strike a balance. But now I think, strategically speaking, they would really, really feel the angst and the agony because they are just located in this region. And to see China growing ever stronger, uh, I think a lot of people would think whether this is the right decision or not to just gang up with the United States so blindly because this decision was made in a very harsh manner. It's not fully consulted. And a lot of people uh, spoke against it. Mm. Yeah, be, be uh, Prime Minister Paul Keating or, or, or just uh, Prime Minister Turnbull. They all talked against it. So in relation to Taiwan then, because as you say, it is all about China and it is about the Taiwan Strait. How does AUKUS change China's calculations about what to do with, with Taiwan? AUKUS uh, would have certainly uh, complicated Beijing's decision-making, but it's not a game-changer. It's just as simple as that. Well, so think of, of the uh, eight nuclear-powered submarines. When could they be produced? And when can they be deployed? And when can they become operational? It is at least 10, 10, year, 10 years away, right? And in the beginning, people basically talk about the first uh, submarine be uh, deployed before 2040. Uh, okay, even in 10 years' time, let me ask you, how strong would then PA Navy become? Right? PA Navy? Okay, let's talk about submarine. In terms of submarine, PLA has more submarines than even in the United States. Of course, there is a question of quality, yeah, and uh, most of the uh, submarines are just the conventional, you know, uh, submarines, but quantity uh, has uh, its own quality, yeah. N numbers also matter, and, and the Chinese uh, ships are also uh, being improved with uh, quality tremendously. So, in 10 years' time, how strong would a Navy become? Then, how would these uh, eight summaries really matter for us? So, as I said before, yeah, it may just complicate our decision-making because we'll have to take them into account, but that is not a game-changer. Jobo, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first 
there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.